0: we started getting these death threats every single day. So we had to bring in bomb sniffing dogs, personal security. And one night I heard something in my house and I heard the noise again. I go in my daughter's room, the lights are off and my daughter is dancing in the middle of the room. She said, look, daddy, I'm dancing. (laughs) Something stopped. The spirit truly just said, look at your daughter. She's dancing in the darkness. The darkness is around her, but the darkness isn't in her. You need to learn how to dance, son. And I changed my message that day, and I came to church to talk about our responsibility and the choice we can make to dance in the darkness. Reverend
1: Dr. Otis Moss III, author of Dancing in the Darkness, Spiritual Lessons for Thriving in Turbulent Times, coming up on The Janus Adams Show. Janice Adams. As journalist, historian, author, race and gender glass ceiling breaker, I wanted to do a show that would nurture our spirits, fuel us for the days ahead, to help us make that way out of no way through these trying times. I wanted to do a show about race, every race, and courage. A show where you and I meet public figures we want to know more about and neighbors from whom we hear too little. Voices, perspectives, insights we simply need to hear. I love the fact that one critic said of my work, Janice Adams gives us vitamins for the soul. Well, with this episode of the podcast, here's a dose for your day. Hi, I'm Janice Adams. Welcome to the show. My guest today is Rev. Dr. Otis Moss III, Senior Pastor of Trinity United Church of Christ in Chicago, Illinois, the congregation once pastored by the Obama family's minister, Rev. Jeremiah Wright. He has a new book out, Dancing in the Darkness, Spiritual Lessons for Thriving in Turbulent Times. Otis Moss, welcome. Wow. Do we need this now?
0: Well, thank you so much for, for, for allowing me to be on the show. Very excited to have the conversation today. Thank you for joining us in his surprising forward,
1: Black Coffee Spirituality. Michael Eric Dyson tells the tale of a mother's lesson to her daughter in which she demonstrates the efforts of putting three different foods in a pot of boiling water, carrots eggs and coffee beans. It's a wonderful introduction, I'm telling the audience straight up, it's a wonderful introduction, prelude to a wonderful book that should be read in full. Dyson makes the point that unlike the carrots that wilt or the eggs that become hard, like coffee beans, black folks have added flavor and fragrance to a society often bitterly opposed to black intelligence and humanity. So I ask you, Reverend Dr. Moss, when you decided to write this book, Dancing in the Darkness, Spiritual Lessons for Thriving in Turbulent Times, how did you envision the situations faced by the carrots, the eggs, and even the coffee beans? And what message did you have for each of them?
0: Mm. Well, that's a wonderful question. Uh, the carrots and the eggs and the coffee beans. I believe that uh, anemic and weak uh, spirituality, or I should say materialism masquerading as spirituality becomes soft or hard, Uh, but deepened spirituality, the recognition that we are all connected, the understanding of the the power of love and compassion, civility, uh, and faith is transformative. That... Black people have released something in the American Democratic Project. From the moment that we landed upon these shores, we were teaching America what it means to be a democracy before America even knew what a democracy was all about. Just by our very presence, just by what we would release from our cultural narrative into uh, the American civic space with our, what I would love to, love to call the, our, our black spirituality, our black religiosity, uh, the black church tradition was bringing those ideas forth. Whether you're talking Frederick Douglass, you know, who made the claim that those of you who claim to uh, serve God, you are not, and as he spoke on that July 4th speech, making this amazing indictment, or it is a, a sojourner truth. Uh, who made the claim and said, Those of you who are promoting this idea of equality between men and women, you have forgotten about Black women. Uh, ain't I a woman? As she raised that question also. And so there has been this moral philosophy this spirituality this idea of ubuntu of of embodying the agape love that is present within uh, the judaic christian tradition uh, that black people have been releasing into uh, the waters of america's democratic project
1: for those who don't know please just quickly define ubuntu and agape
0: Ubuntu is an African term that oftentimes you will hear in, in South Africa and other places. Uh, Nelson Mandela you would, would, would mention the term, along with several other great leaders. And it simply means that my humanity, my spirituality, my full human flourishing is tied into you, that you have the mark of what is sacred on you. So harming you harms me. When you harm me, you harm yourself. Agape, there are three terms that are used in, uh, in, in, in Greek in reference to love. In America, we only got one term, love. We just say love depending upon how you say it. Then someone tries to figure out, are you talking about what kind of love? Uh, there is the phila, like we have Philadelphia. Familiar, brotherly, sisterly love, the love that you have toward family members. There is eros, where we get the word erotic, uh, that love of that physical and uh, intimate love, then there's a the love that you have Jesus speaking about that is used in the uh, the Greek term in the New Testament agape love, the love that God has and demands of god 's people, and this love is inherent is it is reciprocity inherent is it is truth and respect and dialogue and deep compassion and care and requiring of a person to put themselves in the shoes of someone else. That kind of love is radically different than the love we love to talk about on television or on social media. This is a difficult kind of love to live out, but is ultimately nourishing.
1: In your book, you. Have a chapter, Practice Prophetic Grief, and I'm going to ask you to read a a selection from that, if you would, because the the moment that you refer to when a young man walks into Mother of Emmanuel and slaughters parishioners, I was later asked to do commentaries for CBS about that. And it's something that I still wrestle with because no matter what I think and what I say, it always seems inadequate Mm -hmm. to what happened and the legacy of what happened in what has still not happened. Would you read from that chapter worse?
0: This chapter is entitled Practice Prophetic Grief, Forgive to Build Spiritual Resistance. Resentment is like drinking poison and then hoping it will kill your enemies. Nelson Mandela. Forgiveness is a virtue of the brave, Indira Gandhi. It was a June night in 2015 when a young white man, 21 years of age, walked into the church in Charleston, South Carolina. Known as Mother Emanuel, one of the oldest and most revered black churches in the South, the pastor was conducting Bible study when the young man sat down next to him and joined the conversation. As the worshipers began to pray, he unzipped his fanny pack, removed a handgun loaded with hollow core bullets designed to do maximum harm and open fire. He killed nine people, six women, and three men. The shooter, Dylan Roof, fled the church but was captured by police the next morning. He confessed to planning the attack as an expression of his hatred. Views that matched posts on his website expressing hostility to people who categorized as, quote, blacks, Hispanics, Jews, and East Asians. He told the police he had no relationship to the people he killed or to the church where he committed murder. His goal was to provoke all African-Americans to violence. He wanted, he said, quote, to start a race war. Such horrors claw at our spirit. How do we face them? How do we respond? News of the massacre sparked national outrage. The authorities placed a million-dollar bond on the shooter's head. Public debate focused on questions of punishment. How severe? How soon? Was a lifetime in prison enough? The governor of South Carolina called for prosecutors to seek the death penalty. For at least a little while, there was a shared feeling of national outrage at this inhuman crime. Only two days later, at Ruth's bond hearing, some of the survivors of the attack and some family members of the murdered victim spoke to the killer through a video link. They wanted to talk to him directly. What you have to wonder... Could they have felt at the moment, at that moment? Did they want to scream out their rage and grief? Did they want the satisfaction of seeing the monster in chains afraid for his life? In this public setting, something unexpected happened. Far from screaming out their hate and pain, several grieving mothers, fathers, and children of the murdered offered forgiveness to the murderer. They redirected their rage, as I described in chapter three, but they went further. The daughter of victim, Ethel Land said about her mother, quote, I will never talk to her again. I will never be able to hold her again. And then she said to Ruth, but I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people. May God forgive you and I forgive you. When these expressions of mercy spread in the media, some felt shocked. Was it right to forgive a crime so terrible? In what way, commentators asked, did a cold-blooded killer who dreamed of war between the races deserve a pardon? The answer is that Roof did not deserve it. Mercy is only mercy when someone is guilty. Grace is only grace when it's unwarranted. The thing... You should not receive, yet receive anyway, mercy and grace are part of the African-American church tradition, but even so, some prominent African-American writers objected. The professor and essayist Roxanne Gay tweeted that she did not remember any movement to forgive ISIS for their beheadings. Why talk about forgiving white terrorists, she asked. When we do not forgive brown ones, she questioned the motives of those who praised the black families. Who forgave the killer. Later, she wrote, quote, what white people are really asking for when they demand forgiveness from a traumatized community is absolution. She was pointing to the long history of the call to forgive being used against the marginalized, placing an additional additional burden on those already most burdened. White nationalists kill African-Americans, African-Americans forgive, white nationalists kill again. In personal conversations, I heard from plenty of people who were like the victims, families, church-going African-Americans. They seemed to lack a spiritual context for these offers of forgiveness. How could these heartsick survivors, family members, and friends bring themselves to do it, especially so soon? Did they not hunger for revenge? I believe they did hunger. I suspect we all have felt that hunger. Neurologists tell us that revenge satisfies the same parts of the brain that are stimulated by eating. The old expression, revenge is a dish best served cold, or as Tony Soprano puts it, revenge is like serving cold cats. So, yes, I get the hunger. I see that many of our movies and television shows celebrate it. They promise that vengeance will feed us, becoming our satisfaction and our empowerment. The hero with the gun in hand will surprise the villain and open fire. Who does not feel the drama and satisfaction of vengeance? Retribution feeds our hunger, yes, but not for long. In the moment, violent action feels like taking power, correcting an injustice. But even when vengeance is deserved, it does not set things right. I say this not to make a moral judgment, but to state a practical fact. As Dr. King described in his sermon, where do we go from here, there is a practical limit to what violent retribution can do for us. Quote, through violence, you may murder a murderer, he wrote, but you can't murder murder. Through violence, you may murder a liar, but you can't establish truth. Through violence, you may murder a hater, but you can't murder hate through violence. Had Dylan Roof simply been born bad, an isolated outbreak of the disease of evil, an anomaly, then perhaps the solution would have been to destroy him like a rabid dog. Society could catch him, kill him, feel better, and get back to normal, rid of his threat forever. This was the spirit of that moment of anger, of this angry unity that seemed to follow his arrest the united call for punishment. Coming together in anger can feel good for a while. But while the nation soothed itself and shared outrage about one murderer, while the media helped us to narrow our vision to focus on one evil act, we looked away from that lost young man's spiritual parents. We neglected his history and our own. We could see what had happened before, but not what would happen again. In this way, the country's united rage at Dylan Roof became a convenient distraction from a deeper spiritual challenge. Dylan Roof, unfortunately, was no exceptional outbreak of evil. That 21-year-old brother was not even born bad. I think of the old show tune that says you've got to be taught before it's too late to hate all the people. Your relatives hate Dylan Roof had been taught. So although he had been the agent of the Charleston church massacre, he was not the deep source of the hatred and harm. How was he taught? He never finished high school. But he received a full education in race hatred and affliction that diminishes the soul. His schooling drew from established sources. Online, he read and wrote admiringly about the failed apartheid regimes of former Rhodesia and South Africa. He posed for a picture on his website with a gun and a Confederate flag celebrating the violent fight to maintain the institution of slavery. That man studied the world's worst examples of institutionalized hatred, drinking in a long tradition of racist miseducation. Because of that tradition, we have met Dylan Roof many times in the long struggle for freedom. Because of that tradition, we will meet him again many times in the future. The media gave us a long close up on the villain as if he were an exceptional character. But if we imagine pulling back from the dramatic close-up, we can see not just the shooter, but the place that shaped him. Widening the angle, we take the city of Charleston, South Carolina, where the horrific shooting took place. Charleston is a great city, but for all its beauty and wonder, it has struggled to deal with the scars of its history. 40% 40% of all Africans who came to America in chains came through Charleston. The trade in human flesh made Charleston before Reconstruction the wealthiest city in America. It was in Charleston that the shots rang out that started the Civil War. However, I do not mean to put all blame for shaping Dylan Roof on South Carolina. The state itself formed as part of the South, a region where so many Americans who were not enslaved flourished thanks to stolen labor of those who were. After emancipation in the Reconstruction era, the South was rebuilt through conscription, unpaid black labor, new laws, criminalized actions as minor as jaywalking, breaking curfew, and gathering in groups more than two or three. The inmates of the swelling prison population were sold to white companies that required prisoners to work off their sentences. These policies and others blocking African-Americans from inheriting land and voting wove a web of inhuman restriction that covers the South to this day. And the South, of course, is a part of the United States, an entire nation where the factories flourished as they manufactured the raw materials produced by slaves, where the poor cities thrived because of the profitable trade in those raw materials and those factory products and those enslaved people themselves and where racist policies and practices in education, real estate, banking, policing, and other areas still wait to be redressed. When we widen our view to take in the history of this country, a country that enshrined in its constitution the original sins of slavery and the destruction of indigenous peoples, we see at last why we are fated to meet Dylan Roof again no matter how many times we catch and kill him.
1: Reverend Dr. Otis Master III, author of the new book, Dancing in the Darkness, Spiritual Lessons for Thriving in Turbulent Times. More here on The Janice Adams Show after the break. Here on the Janice Adams Show with my guest, Rev. Dr. Otis Moss III, Senior Pastor of Chicago's Trinity United Church of Christ. He has a new book out, Dancing in the Darkness, Spiritual Lessons for Thriving in Turbulent Times. Before the break, he read from the section, Practice Prophetic Grief, a chapter painful and profound. Here again, the
0: last lines. When we widen our view to take in the history of this country, a country that enshrined in its constitution the original sins of slavery and the destruction of indigenous peoples, we see at last why we are fated to meet Dylan Roof again, no matter how many times we catch and kill him.
1: Thank you for that reading. I want to ask you about this because as I said before, that entire circumstance still has me rocked to the core, not because it was just because it was a one more church assault on black people because white terrorists have been doing that since the beginning. There are too many black church shootings, black church bombings, black church fire bombings to even be counted in over 400 years. That has been the MO for this, what black people considered a safe space. But this idea of forgiving the terrorist is still disturbing to me. And. Part of the reason that I have a problem with it is because there's almost an expectation that black people should be magnanimous in the face of white terror. So that's one part of it. And I even wonder if given the history that we're dealing with here, if given the terrorism that has been consistent, if some of the need to forgive this man might have come from thoughts of possible retribution.
0: And that is a wonderful uh, question and one to to wrestle with. In the book, I attempt to share the fact that we have forgiveness wrong. We have been framing forgiveness as friendship. We're cool. It's all right. Everything is good. No, 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 no. When we frame forgiveness in the black spiritual tradition, and I'm talking, going back to 1619, and the fact that mother Emmanuel was burned down by the city of Charleston, because it decided to be a liberation space of raising the question of how black people will not only own land, but build their own institutions. The city burned down the church. And we're hoping to burn down those who were in the church. So when I visited Mother Emmanuel and heard the history of saying that we have always been under assault because we're free black space and the idea of forgiveness from reading some of these documents from the 1800s and 1700s, they were not talking about being friends with anybody. They were talking about spiritual resistance. Spiritual resistance means that if I allow you to have power over my heart and mind you then occupy a space in my soul that keeps me from fully flourishing as a human being so when i say i forgive you it is not that i'm cool with you i'm saying you won't occupy space with me anymore just as nelson mandela did when he walked out of that prison on Robben island they raised a question to him they said you know what we saw you on Uh, the video screen, when you were in in the prison, you you looked one way, rather bitter, but when you walked out, you looked differently. He said, there are some things I had to leave behind. Mm. I rested with all of the feelings that I had in reference to the white terrorist government of South Africa, I couldn't be president for everybody. I don't forget it, but I do not allow it to control my decisions spiritual resistance. So when I say I forgive, it means I release, but I don't forget, but I do not allow your actions to control my decisions now. White supremacist frameworks of forgiveness want Black people to forget, forgive, and give absolution. But out of Black spirituality and biblically, it means, and that's what I love biblically, the idea that Especially within the Jewish tradition, that when something is committed, not everybody's responsible; everybody's accountable. I gotta hold you accountable for the actions that you have taken, and then work to what is known as "tikkun olam." I've gotta work toward repair, meaning that I, my role is so that my grandchildren don't experience the injury that I had. So I've got to release some things so I can make the appropriate decisions to build a world that has not yet been built.
1: Use the word repair, and that word is linked to reparations often. Yes. So what is the reparation to the black soul?
0: Mm, mm. You know, there's a wonderful book that the professor did in reference to reparations for, for my soul, borrowing from uh, Gil Scott Heron. Uh, Talking about uh, reparations and reparations for for the black soul is the flourishing, moving from the survivor's expertise to being fully able to flourish in spaces that have been designed, influenced and created by us and in spaces uh, that were not created by us meaning that I not only have free movement, but I have free imagination and free creativity to release myself from any box that has been created by the racialized imagination. And that is a project, that's a generational project. Now there's reparations in reference to what will we do economically and empowerment and what will happen to our society. But in terms of the soul care, this is generational project. We have to create one of the greatest injuries that has happened to black people and to America is the lack of imagination and the stealing of our imagination of what we can be and can do. Oppressed people put <laughs> limits on what can happen.
1: Oppressed people put limits on what can happen and oppressive people put limits on what will happen. So I have to ask the question then again about this reparations to the soul, because our audience has a lot of people who are not black. What are the reparations to the souls? Let's start at the root indigenous people. Mm -hmm. What is the reparation that can possibly be done to that soul?
0: I think the reparation in reference to our indigenous brothers and sisters creates the space where they are able to imagine what their reparation shall be because one of the things that in a supremacist framework the supremacist will say let me tell you what you need no they are the ones who would determine and we sit and say, we affirm, support, and how do we get there? For example, if I'm invited by Wynton Marcellus to play in his band, I'm not taking over as band leader. I'm just gonna play my section. <laughs> and and what needs to happen is, especially some people need to know, keep your butt in your section and let the band leaders tell you what you are gonna play.
1: I hear that. Um, then, if that is the case, then what about the white supremacist soul? Are we in the position where they too have to be the determinants of what they need?
0: White supremacists will never be delivered until the white supremacists realize that they're not white, <laughs> that it is a social construction <laughs> completely designed in relationship usually to people of African descent or people of color. I spoke at a church in Columbus, Ohio. It was really quite funny because the people freaked out when I said it. I said, you know, I'm basically the only brother up in here speaking for this. Le- it was a lecture series that they invited me to do this lecture series on, uh, on preaching. And I said, I want you all to know that you all are only white because I'm in the room. Because once I leave the room, you go back to being German and Irish and you you become ethnic. And 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 ethnicity is is wonderful. You said because ethnicity has heritage and has food and it, it, it has stories and it has music. But there is no white food and white music and all of that because it has no, it's not ethnicity. And prior to the introduction of whiteness, enslaved Africans and indentured Ethnic Europeans found that they had commonality and that started what was known as the Bacon Rebellion in Virginia. And when plantation owners saw that we had more commonality, they said, I'm not going to give you more money, indentured Irish person, but I will make you white so you can say that you're better than those black people. And so whiteness is then introduced as a false social construction to keep us from recognizing that we actually can all get in the same band and begin to play together.
1: Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III, author of the new book, Dancing in the Darkness, Spiritual Lessons for Thriving in Turbulent Times. More here on The Janice Adams Show after the break. Back here on the Janice Adams Show with my guest, Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III, Senior Pastor of Chicago's Trinity United Church of Christ. His new book is Dancing in the Darkness, Spiritual Lessons for Thriving in Turbulent Times.
0: This is from Rework Your Origin Story. Become a Spiritual Hero. God works through me. The same as you. There is no feat I achieve that you are not capable of. T'Challa, King of Wakanda from the Black Panther. With everything we've beaten, everything we've endured, everything we've risen above, everything we've become, no matter what comes next, we've won. We've already won. Rick Grimes from The Walking Dead. Ever since I was a kid, I have wondered where heroes come from. How some people bruised and broken find ways not to tolerate the darkness and seize opportunities and chaos, but to transform themselves and do extraordinary good. How some nations do the same. I first found stories of transformation like that in my comic books. The origin stories of so many superheroes begin when they are lost and miserable, the baby who would become Superman, was born to parents whose world was about to be destroyed. They placed their child alone in a spacecraft to Earth, where he arrived as a helpless orphan, knowing no one. Storm, the mutant hero of the X-Men franchise, lost her parents in Egypt during a war. She survived on the streets as a homeless thief. Like the young Superman, she saw evidence that she could do things others could not. Her thoughts and feelings influenced the weather, but she did not know how to develop those gifts or what purpose they might serve. Rick Grimes from The Walking Dead was an ordinary family man and police officer who was knocked unconscious in the line of duty. Then zombies started walking, and he woke up alone in his hospital bed, unable to contact anyone he knew and desperate to survive as society collapsed around him. Any of these three might have been defeated by such harsh events. They might have described themselves something like this. I am a victim of circumstances in a world that is dangerous, cruel, and unjust. I can't trust or depend on others. I have no moral code beyond looking out for myself. I do what I must to survive. That is the essence of their stories when we meet them. With their bitter past, Hunger to survive, and unique physical powers, they might easily have become possessed by the demon of self centeredness, only ever out for themselves. They might have become villains. In fact, if you compare the origin stories of heroes and villains, you find they begin in similar ways. The humbling aspect of our origins is that we are all potentially heroes and villains, saints and sinners. Protagonists and antagonists, until we begin to make choices. For each of these three, I mentioned, events unfolded to offer new and dramatic alternatives for understanding themselves and their place in the world. What fascinates me about these characters is not just the former victims discover that they have unusual powers or that they become crime fighters, their comic book transformations from victim to superhero hide a spiritual mystery. Like Clark Kent in a phone booth, these characters remake themselves, taking on a new and more authentic identity, and they become powerful and purposeful in ways no one would have expected. Isn't that what we all wish to do? Instead of continuing her solitary life as a thief, Storm joins the X-Men to fight evil and become a leader and nurturer of young, lost mutants, a beacon of power and calm. Rick Grimes intends to fight only for himself and his immediate family. Yet in time, he makes the choice to fight for the whole human family. These victims, bent only on their own survival, find a higher purpose, a spiritual perspective on their troubled world and opportunities to make that world better. As I grew up reading and watching the stories of superheroes, in a home that also lifted up the tradition of Dr. King, I made the connection. Before their transformation, these characters' lives were incomplete in Dr. King's sense. Love and justice were out of balance in all three dimensions. They had not achieved the authentic fulfillment of the self because they did not yet know what gifts they had been given, how to use them, or what a meaningful use of these gifts might be lacking community. They had not developed their sense of engagement and social responsibility, and they had no relationship to spirituality or God, beyond sometimes wishing for divine help when they got into trouble. In their transformations, however, they remade themselves and their relationships both on earth and with the spiritual, becoming embodiments of love linked to justice. Thank you for that reading. I want to ask you, Otis Moss, who are you?
1: How did you come to be who you are? And what do you absolutely love about being who you are?
0: Oh, that's a wonderful question. Um without a doubt I am I I am a a son, a husband, Uh, a father uh, who was raised in a very unique family. Both of my parents were involved in the freedom movement. They met in the freedom movement. Uh, My father was an organizer uh, in the freedom movement. My mother was the office manager for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. The the wedding was performed by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I always joke and say I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Dr. King. Um, And (laughs) there. Their, their engagement party happened in 1966 as the Southern Christian Leadership Conference had their retreat in Miami at the Eden Rock Hotel, uh, Coretta Scott King and Martin Luther King Jr. through a, a surprise engagement party for my parents. And the entire brain trust of the SCLC was there. But that was also the time period that they were planning for the Poor People's Campaign, uh, that they were planning to put together... A uh, piece that would bring together indigenous, Latino, and poor whites, and my parents were also being celebrated as they were preparing to uh, to get married together. So I come out of what is known as the Black spiritual, prophetic tradition in terms of of my faith tradition, the belief that these demarcations that you lay out denominationally really do not exist. I always thought that you know there were you know Black folk believe one thing and some other folk believe some other things. I thought we were all about, you know, community and transformation and liberation. I thought that was it. I'm a child of an HBCU, Morehouse College. Uh, I have extreme Southern sensibilities. Georgia, I consider my home, though I'm ra- raised in the Midwest. Uh, and I, I absolutely love the fact that that I had the privilege and didn't know it, did not know it, that growing up that I had the privilege of being in the spaces of some of the giants of our time. I did not know that it was a, it was a great thing that you're sitting with John Lewis and I, Andrew Young as a small kid. I, I didn't know that the names of Benjamin Mays and Howard Thurman, I didn't meet them personally, but I, I just heard those stories all the time. I didn't know that Fannie Lou Hamer was this giant until I was older and then come to find out that when I was a baby, you know, oh yeah, she stayed at the house. I was like, what, who, what, what, what? So I'm reading about these people and I'm discovering the history of my own family now as I inquire and interview my mother and my father and, and realize that they have been steeped so deeply uh, in, uh, in the work and in the witness of transformation and this idea of, of agape love connected to justice.
1: So your parents are still with you. Yes. And what, well, what do they think of the book?
0: (laughs) (laughs) They love it. I got a call, which was just absolutely delightful. My mom called me and, and my mother is a straight shooter. She's super honest. Um, And she will never in any way, shape or form. She's not your hype man, but she's always in your corner. If you know what I mean, mom just tells the truth. She called me and then as she said, said, Otis, and then she stopped and she just got choked up and she said, baby, I'm so proud of you. And she said, that's all I can say. I got (laughs) to go. And she just got, and that was one of the most beautiful things to hear my mother who is absolutely this brilliant, amazing thinker um, that she just, she was really overwhelmed. And then and, and she just said, I just really just wanna let you know, I'm, I'm just so proud of you.
1: Well, of course I'm not mom, but in the break I was telling you, I am as my friends at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine have told me a laxed Episcopalian, <laughs> they love that term and so do I, um, who absolutely loves the book. And uh, I, I'm honest about it. I I do pull away from things that have to do with religious leanings, and that has everything to do with my work as a journalist and historian. I feel as though I've simply seen and heard too much to Go there. But when I read the book, it spoke so directly to life, to reality, to not the myth, but to the fact of what we go through. And then the spirituality of it, the the interior life that we are called now, if I use that term, to draw on, to get through once again. America's lapse of depth and justice, and all that kind of stuff. to ask you this: Why the title?
0: Oh, the title. That's that's actually my favorite uh, story. Dancing in the Darkness is the last chapter in the book, which is about my daughter. Uh, she was small when about. yeah, She's probably about about three or four, somewhere in there. Maybe she's five. I'm mean, always forget the uh, the age. She w- she's gonna been over five. But we were going through the period at Trinity when uh, Senator Obama, then became President Obama, was running for president. I was senior pastor. People didn't know that. These people, they had put out in the media that Dr. Wright was the senior pastor of Trinity, but he had already retired. And so when the brouhaha hit about the Obamas being a part of Trinity, um, I, was, I was the pastor at the time. And once it hit, cause I remember being in uh, the, I was working out and I was on the treadmill and somebody said, Hey, is that your church on TV? And I looked up and there was Sean Hannity screaming. Uh, <laughs> I said, I gotta go right now. And as soon as it hit the media, we had 40 outlets outside of our church every single Sunday cameras lined up on the sidewalk and that's when we started getting these death threats i mean every single day so we had to hire people to bring in bomb sniffing dogs i had to have personal security dr wright had to have personal security we had to have specialized security at church um and we're getting these letters and emails and you know you just i i I was really frazzled. I couldn't sleep at night. And one night, I heard something in my house. And my wife, Monica, she's like, you need to check that out. And uh, so I grabbed my rod and my staff to comfort me uh, that said Louisville Slugger on it, walking around the house, uh, (laughs) checking out to see what was going on. And I heard the noise again. And I went uh, over to my daughter's room. I go in my daughter's room. And the lights are off, and my daughter is dancing in the middle of the room, just dancing. I'm just like, baby, you need to go to bed. It's like, you know, 2 a.m., I've got to preach in the morning. And something stopped me. The Spirit truly just said, look at your daughter. She's dancing in the darkness. The darkness is around her, but the darkness isn't in her. You need to learn how to dance, son. Dance in the darkness. and..." I changed my message that, uh, that day, and I came to church and to talk about our responsibility and the choice we can make to dance in the darkness that there will be. And, and the scripture was, you have turned my mourning into dancing. And I talked about the necessity and the power of making the choice and how our ancestors knew how to dance in the darkness. And I went through a litany of dancers, dancers who landed in 1619, but refused to, to give into despair. The dancers of Frederick Douglass and the dancers of Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman and be, I said, we've been dancing for a long time. We have to reclaim our ability to be able to dance in the darkness. And that's, that's where the title of the book came from.
1: That's the title of the book. Wow. Um, you know, we, we often rely on our ministry to tell us what we need to hear, to tell us what we need to know. And I'm really struck by that story because I'm hearing you learning what we need to hear. Learning what you need to know so that you can Share it with us. Um, in that moment when you see your daughter dancing in the darkness, what does she tell
0: you? She said, and the words she actually used was also what she was speaking. She said, "Look, Daddy, I'm dancing <laughs> with a little barrettes just twisting around. Look, Daddy." I'm da- And those words just penetrated me. Look, daddy, I'm dancing. She wasn't afraid of the darkness. I mean, here I am with completely frazzled because I'm worried. Everything, every noise is making me jump. Every person I don't recognize. I had given into a level of fear that is now controlling my Ability to be able to make appropriate decisions. And here's this little girl in the darkness, not afraid, but utter joy, but there were no lights on. And she taught me more. I had a, I had a full seminary class, a philosophy class, theology class in that moment from that little girl because she was dancing. Look, daddy, I'm dancing. I love that.
1: What is her name? Michaela. Michaela Alon. I am thankful to Michaela Alon for that. As the person who authored this wonderful book, as the person who watched his daughter dance in the darkness and came to this, you say that these are spiritual lessons for thriving in turbulent times. What is the greatest lesson you've learned in the process?
0: Hmm the greatest lesson is that all our work is in process, that it's not complete, that every song that we write, every composition that we create, every book that we write, every conversation that we have is in process. Meaning that we, my father puts it this way, in my time, uh, in my space, I choose to make a difference. And in your time and your space, you choose to make a difference. And if we are given the gift to be able to see our work from a mountaintop and not in the valley, we may see that there has been major progress that we can't witness when we are in the fog of the struggle.
1: Thank you so much for being our guest today.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: My thanks to Reverend Dr. Moss and to you for joining us here on the Janice Adams Show today. For more about the show, links to the podcast, and my guest, visit my website, janusadams.com. That's J A N U S adams.com. Produced in cooperation with WJFF Radio Catskill, post-production Jason Dole and Patricio Rubio, this show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, All Rights Reserved.